good afternoon, Walt Whitman. Uh, this is going to be hopefully the first episode of uh, a series that will be it'll be involving uh, interviewing different figures uh, of the school, and um, today we'll be interviewing a philosophy teacher, uh, Mr. Panino. How you doing? I'm a, mostly a teacher as opposed to a figure, though. Yeah. <laughs> so what got you into philosophy? When I went here, uh, I took all the social studies electives. I was always very interested in, in, in history and politics and these kinds of things. My father was a social studies teacher, so that was a big influence. And uh, to me, philosophy is the first principles. You know, we're studying all these events and uh, revolutions or governments or whatever it is in history we're studying. And to me, the most important thing was what ideas are these based on? Like, why did they have that revolution? Or why did they try to create government or an economic system or whatever it might be? So I think philosophy kind of just uh, is the foundation or the, or the starting point for a lot of these other things that we study. Mm -hmm. Uh, what philosophical ideas, when you were looking to different revolutions, things like that, were most appealing to you? I have to keep giving credit uh, to my dad, mm -hmm. the real Mr. Panino, <laughs> uh, because the dinner table conversations every night had something to do with, with these topics, current events or, or history, and he would always bring it back to the first principles. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that I teach about in my class uh, the orientation or, the, or the, the, the structure of the course is um, to start with those most basic ideas. So the first time I ever heard of natural law philosophy, for example, was my pop. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that kind of helped me see certain things that I maybe wouldn't have seen if he had not brought them up. A lot of times you're reading about events and you don't realize there's a lot more going on under the surface in terms of ideas or, or motivations. Um, so the whole idea of... of natural law, there were certain universal truths, and, and from that, the conclusion was made that people have unalienable human rights, certain natural rights. Uh, that was very exciting to me from the beginning. It's very grounding. You know, from there you can, you know, go and analyze all of these other things and, and know better what to make of them. What do you feel like is the utility of uh, your experience involving uh, the reading on natural law philosophy and uh, human rights and things like that. What do you feel is the utility of that in the classroom when you're trying to teach these ideas and other ideas to kids? Well, I always um, want to try to teach things in terms of there, there are different conclusions people make and different ideas out there. And obviously, natural law and natural rights is one set of ideas. And it has um, a number of, uh, there's another com uh, many other competing ideas. Um, I try to always show things in terms of that. Uh, especially in the philosophy class. I mean, frankly, in the government class, uh, a lot of people don't know that our government was founded on this philosophy. When we do it in government, um, I just try to help them understand what this philosophy is and what the idea of natural rights are. In a class like philosophy, I'm always juxtaposing it with here are the opposite ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and you asked about the utility in terms of, of in the classroom? Yeah, like how, how you go about, you know, like teaching kids about this stuff and how you try to present everything. I'm still figuring all that out yeah. as I go. Mm -hmm. I've only had, you know, a couple, uh, let's see, I took over the philosophy class from, do you guys remember Mr. Young? He taught me philosophy here at Whitman. He was also a big inspiration on me, uh, even though I think we have a lot of very different views. When he retired, or I guess I was a second year teacher, um, I guess I was the only guy in the department that wanted to teach it. 
Uh, and ever since then, I've been trying to figure out what is the best way to do it, and I'll never know. But I just keep working at it. You know, always a work in progress. And what was your classroom experience with uh, Mr. Young? It was great. No, it was great. I, I always loved them. I actually had a lot of great teachers here when I went here, and I still remember them, and they, they were all a big inspiration, uh, especially Mrs. Daddario. Um, this is the mother-in-law of the current Mrs. Daddario. So for me, Mrs. Daddario is Alice Daddario, who uh, taught me AP history, and then uh, she actually hired me. Wow. Um, so yeah, and, and uh, her style of teaching was just something to behold. And I think all of us who, who watched her and were lucky enough to have her um, learned tremendously on, on how she goes about things. Uh, very question-based approach. And she was always very animated and, and very witty and just, you know, you, you really wanted to try to be like her. And I had a number of teachers like that that were really inspiring. Now, Mr. Young was very kind of calm and... Uh, and uh, subdued, and, and he was very thoughtful and deliberative, uh, very different from Mrs. Daddario. Uh, but also, he was, he was very inspiring. He was a very deep thinker, you know. Uh, what kind of ideas did he really conform to when he was teaching the class? In any philosophy class done right, you try to present multiple ideas, different philosophies and different understandings of things. Uh, he, his conclusions um, probably were very different from the conclusions that I wound up making eventually. What kind of conclusions did he come up with? Well, I still have a, um, one of these name tag things from a, a socialist conference he went to, mm -hmm. and um, I, I don't think I make it any big secret that I'm not a socialist. So you started off as a student of philosophy, and you, you had a teacher, Mr. Young. What was the process in where you decided, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to become, I want to become, te become a teacher, and I want to involve different ideas and ethics in my teaching? When I was a student in high school, I, I very much believed that sometimes things uh, were presented in a way where it was, it was just one side, and I thought that was wrong, and you have to try to present multiple points of view uh, wherever it's a, uh, appropriate. Now, I don't think it's always appropriate. Uh, if I'm teaching about the Nazis, I'm not going to give the pro-Nazi view and the anti-Nazi view because that's not appropriate. Sorry, Nazis, you're just wrong. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of areas where multiple points of view are really necessary because the more points of view we hear, the better picture of the truth, the reality, uh, we have a chance to, uh, to, you know, to get to. Um, and sometimes I think uh, we can forget that and we'll just, just show the one point of view. And then in college, I, I, I saw it worse. Uh, where pr some professors would even punish you if you didn't agree with their conclusions and write exactly what they wanted, you didn't do well. In, in, and that's just wrong. Uh, because these are controversial things, you know, in the social sciences. Um, so I've always said, I don't want to be like that. I'm going to do my best to try to not be like that. So sometimes in class, I'll, I'll pretend, I'll take a position and act like that's what I believe, and that's totally not what I believe. You know, and then I'll maybe completely try to present the opposite side the next day, and I'll just suddenly do a complete, you know, turn and, uh, and take the other side. So I try to do that where I can. But I, I know I fail. I mean, we're all human, and uh, our biases come through. But I think if you try to be aware of it and avoid it as best you can, you're doing the right thing. What kind of steps do you take preemptively before you even start giving the lesson to create this lesson that involves all different viewpoints on particular subjects? Well, you know, we're always evolving our, uh, you know, with our lesson plans, we're always tweaking them and changing them and trying new things. So 
a huge amount of planning goes on before the lesson. Most of a teacher's job, and I, I think I'm speaking for all of us, is, uh, is not happening in the classroom. Um, and when you feel like you've nailed it and you've, you've put together a, you know, a really good way of, um, of dealing with the topic, eventually that's going to change and you go and start over again. So you do your best to try to plan it ahead of time. In, uh, in government class, especially when we get to current American politics, uh, just the way I even design uh, the notes that I give out, I've got, uh, here's what the left generally says, here's what the right generally says. I try to go to the left for the left, and you read uh, conservative voices for the positions on the right. You don't want to read from a conservative what the liberals think or from a liberal what the conservatives think. So you try to use them in their own words. And uh, I juxtapose them next to each other in the notes. And I try to set up all of the lessons like that because that's where it really is the most appropriate, I, th I think, in government class. And in philosophy, too, we'll look at, um, you know, well, if we're studying individualism, we need to study collectivism. If we're looking at objectivism, we are going to look at relativism. And, you know, you try to set it up like that. There are certain uh, topics that involve the total non-belief of fundamental truths and things like that. How do you exactly go about articulating that as a course where there's right and wrong answer and things like that? How do you go about teaching these kids whilst also, you know, keeping these perspectives in mind? Well, we operate in a high school following the rules of the high school. And, and sorry, there are tests and there are right answers and wrong answers, and, and that's the way it is. Um, I, I know that some college professors will um, say, okay, guys, here's the test. And the, top, the test question is, why? That's it. <laughs> People will write all kinds of things, and, and the story goes that one student wrote, why not? And they got a, like a B-plus or something. You know, but uh, sure, there's arguments out there that grades are arbitrary and that uh, answers are impossible. And, you know, <laughs> we, what are we going to do? We just do our best. But to me, it, you know, it, it's kind of like a paradox. So if I'm teaching about the relativist view and the radical relativist view is that there is no truth. All right, so what do I do now? Um, True-false question. According to relativism, there is no truth. Well, that's true. But are there actual answers? Are there truths? You know, so we, we can chase our tail with this. But if you're going to say you understand a philosophy, then it is either true or false that that particular philosophy has that particular position. Same thing with the philosophers, you know. Either Plato uh, taught about the allegory of the cave or he didn't. And you could apply that with any philosopher who calls themselves relativist or postmodern or rejecter of objective truth. Is there anything in the course that you wish you could talk about, like that you just don't have enough time for, or the curriculum isn't fitting of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, each unit we do in there, we could spend a whole course on if we wanted to. But one thing that always bothered me was I felt like we waited, you know, we, we do ethics at the end, which I think is where it belongs, because you need the foundation of, of everything else to lead up to the views of morality. But then I felt we didn't have a lot of time left to do that. Then... Uh, I became the teacher of genocide. Uh, so I feel like everybody should take philosophy. Um, this is totally horrible. This is like self-aggrandizing, right? Uh, so <laughs> I don't mean to plug here, but if you Shameless take plug, <laughs> it's horrible. If you take philosophy first, right, mm -hmm. then the very first unit in genocide is how do we have a standard of right and wrong? You know, so we spend a long time um, just exploring. Uh, what our standard of morality is. And if you think about it, why do we study genocide? 
because it's interesting. You know, that's ridiculous. We always say, well, we want to know about these things so they never happen again. Why? Because they're wrong. Those are bad. This is evil. We're studying pure evil. Well, if I'm going to make that statement, then there has to be a basis for what evil is. Uh, so we, we try to clarify that and, and, and look at that in the first unit of genocide. So I feel like I've been redeemed a little bit. Um, but you still have to take the genocide class. If you take philosophy and then don't take genocide, then you get the short version. Like, are there any particular philosophers that you feel you don't get to touch on enough that are vastly more influential than others in the course? You know what? I guess I've made peace with that because it's a half-year high school course, and a lot of this stuff is the first time anybody's hearing of it. And, you know, there's all kinds. There's, um, you know, there are students who take it because they're already interested in it, and they've done their, they've read about things, and they know quite a bit. And then there's others who don't know anything it's all brand new so I have to take it at that pace I, I couldn't go too far with any particular philosopher anyway mm -hmm. but I do try to give students just kind of an introduction in, to a whole bunch of them now at the end of the year for philosophy you have kids read uh, anthem yeah and um, why exactly did you choose anthem over like uh, Fahrenheit 451 1984 uh, books along those lines why did you choose anthem okay well uh, the English department assigns some of these books. Uh, I know Fahrenheit 451 uh, has been assigned and, and you know, a, a number of these really great dystopia books that are also really philosophy books. Um, so certain books I'm like, well, I'm not going to assign those. Um, I want to try to pick something that students never read. For a while I dabbled with uh, Sophie's World. It didn't work out that well. Um, I think the students, you know, they, some of them liked it, some of them didn't. And the other thing is it's an elective class. I know this is, sounds like a cop-out, but I don't want to beat people over the head with too much outside work to do in an elective class. And, y you know, you look at Rand's novel, Anthem, it's a novella, really. It, it's so tiny, and it's got this big print, and uh, it's like, what is it, an eighth-grade reading level. I don't think it's too much to ask students in an elective to read this book that you could really read in a couple of nights. Uh, so I think it fits perfectly for that reason. I think a lot of people never heard of it. Uh, so that, that to me is very good because now they'll be exposed to something they wouldn't have seen. And uh, it really does cover all the basics in there one way or another. Now it does it from her point of view and people do not have to agree with her point of view. But she does provide us this nice kind of summation of all the topics we dealt with in the class. So I think it's a great way to end it. How do you feel about presenting Ayn Rand's view, similar to how people would view like someone like Nietzsche, where they'd say that Nietzsche is not an actual philosopher, rather he's you know, uh, he's a, he's a poet or a sociologist or something like that. I think they're entitled to their opinion. I don't agree. You know, I mean, honestly, Rand's books are some of the top-selling books of the 20th century, um, in terms of of that category. You know, um, uh, and you know, same thing with Nietzsche. I mean, my goodness, you know. Um, you could say Nietzsche's not a philosopher. What, what I think is weird is sometimes the same people who will just categorically say, that's not a philosopher, that person's not a philosopher. Meanwhile, the person writes books like Objectivist Epistemology and Why Philosophy is Important and stuff like that. Then they'll turn around and they'll talk about some obscure poet uh, that I never heard of, you know, and say, this person's got such an amazing philosopher. What a philosopher. Mm -hmm. So who's to say what a philosopher is, you know? Uh, I think that if you... Ask questions and, and, and study the categories of philosophy, like metaphysics and epistemology. I think you're, you're pretty qualified to be called a philosopher. 
and, and Rand did those things. Uh, most of the time when people say she's not a philosopher, it's because they don't like her conclusions. It's not because she's not following some kind of proper formula. Taking all these ideas into account and how much experience you've had over 24 years, um, what do you feel you've learned to be your most important duty as a teacher? I guess it's always been um, the same, and I think I speak for pretty much uh, everybody here. All, the, all teachers believe we're trying to encourage students to think and to uh, learn the process of thinking. And uh, I really believe most of us are trying to do that, and that's definitely what I'm trying to do. Um, at the end of the day, people are going to come to whatever conclusions they come to. I'm hoping that when they leave here, they remember something from my courses about how to properly seek good conclusions and understand that there's always more to learn and that we might have always been wrong all along and to always be, um, you know, seeking. Why do you feel that it takes until senior year for kids to hear about some of these philosophical ideas that uh, took place and were uh, cornerstones for creating this country's founding documents? You know, New York State um, has seniors take participation in government. Um, and the first thing we do in that class to understand our government is to spend some time understanding the philosophy it was on. So I think it's just, it's just the way the whole thing falls. I don't know that I spend... Um, uh, too much time on it. Funny enough, when I looked at Common Core, there's an awful lot about the founding principles in there. And I, I think that's where you have to start. You start with the founding principles, and then you try to understand, now, how do we put the ideas into practice? So why do we create the government the way we did? More of a philosophical look at the Constitution. And then ultimately, we get into the, the current issues and, and how to approach them. But I hope that we're more informed on how to approach them by understanding, you know, the first principle stuff. With 23, 24 years of teaching Gov, what do you feel has changed um, in terms of like uh, the conversation pieces and things like that? Actually, I remember when it seemed like it was current events to talk about O.J. Simpson. The, the government class, there's always going to be changes based on what the hot divisions are in society. And uh, I remember O.J. Simpson was something we needed to talk about in government class and then the whole debate around that. So whatever's going on in current events is going to affect the class even in, in indirect ways. But then other things have evolved over time where, for example, now we do a whole unit in, in government on um, American foreign policy, especially in the context of 9-11 and the war on terror and, and how our country is so different post 9-11. And it really has, has changed a lot. So that became a whole unit in and of itself. But then at any given time, uh, and all of us do this as, as we're, whatever we're talking about, uh, we're relating it to things going on in the present. So you're taking current events and, and the headlines and, and using it, say, to talk about the Constitution or, or the founding principles or, or whatever it might be. Have you seen a different attitude amongst people in your class from, say, 1996 to now, where nowadays we have uh, high school students going on live television talking about uh, pushing for reforms and Congress and things like that. How do you feel the attitude of the, ch the students in your classes has shifted from, say, 20 years ago to now? Well, on one hand, I, I think that we don't really change. I think we always like to think we change, and we think we're so different from the people that came before us. It's, it's really not nearly as much as we think. Uh, I think young people always are idealistic and always feel like they're going to make the world better. And all I can say is that's awesome. 
you know, thank God we, that we're, we're founded on the idea that we're never finished. We're always a work in progress. That's why it says Excelsior on the New York flag. But young people should always feel like, all right, now pretty soon it's going to be our time and we're going to try to make the changes. I think what is different now, though, is social media and the Internet have, have changed it because instead of just talking to your friends or the people around you about it, you potentially have millions of people who could hear what you're saying. And you could be exposed to millions of people out there and randomly or not so randomly, you're being exposed to all kinds of things that uh, were not readily available. I used to think, man, this is great. This is the new world. This is the information revolution. More information, more better. How could this be bad? I gotta tell you, it's now I worry about it. I don't know if I'm getting to be a curmudgeon, but there's so much garbage that people will read and take at face value or, or be influenced by. And I don't think we old people can, um, can keep up with the challenge. You know, we, it, I, we feel like we're, we're fighting quicksand or something. We're always like, no, 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 wait, wait, that, that, wait, that person does not know what they're talking about. That's some schmuck. I don't even know if the person you just read is a real person or a bot. Or it's a Russian or something like that. Or it's just some schmuck who's pretending to be somebody else, you know? And we have known about this, too. I mean, what's that show, Catfish? Yeah. Where people pretend that, you know? Oh, God, It's yeah. so weird. Yeah. But, you know, all right, it's bad enough if you're, you're messing with somebody's romantic life, but now you're messing with people's worldviews, you know? So uh, it's a problem. The truth is, when you're young, you don't realize what you don't know. I think when you get older, you start to realize, oh, my gosh, I don't know anything. You know, there's so much I don't know. And that's harder for us when we're younger. We get a little educated on something. We're like, oh, man, well, I read this and other people don't know that. So now I know the final say on this. And then you have that youthful passion and you're out there fighting for your cause. And you don't realize that you, you really don't know what you're talking about or you don't know that much what you're talking about. And you need to listen to people who don't agree with you. I think that can be harder for young people who can be full of all of that enthusiasm. But then again, it's hard for older people too. So I, I don't know. And how have you tried to combat that with the course as now these uh, current issues are up? I think we're little specks of sand, you know, on the big beach. It's, I don't know. I mean, what, what can we do? We do our best to try to uh, bring this to people's attention in our classes and, um, I don't know. I think I think that the uh, the technology got ahead of us. It definitely did. I think um, it, there's a lot of parents out there. For example, if they could go back and do it again, they probably w might be saying now, "Gee, I wish I didn't give my my uh, first grader or kindergarten kid this stupid device that they got hooked on and can't get off and started looking at things that they shouldn't have seen, you know, and didn't know how to process or reading things they didn't really know how to process." Um, I don't know. We're still doing it anyway, though. It's like we haven't made a big change to try to rein in, you know, all the misinformation or, or, or overstimulation. I know you made a, a website called classicalliberal.org. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that was necessarily a measure to combat uh, this expansion of online uh, reading and things like that. But um, how do you feel you've taken steps in order to combat these sorts of things? The whole um, website thing was back in the late 90s. Whitman offered a workshop that said, hey, we're going to, you know, embrace the new technology. We're going to teach you how to make a web page. So I, it was easy to just drop and drag. And this was before the e-board. 
So really, it was just a kind of an extension of the textbook or the chalkboard or something like that where we can have, but the links were really cool too. Now you can send them to all these different news sources and sources of information. But to me, the sources are still credentialed. You know, like I'm sending you to a legitimate history um, page done by actual historians or to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Those, those are real publications. Um, and then after that was all done, all of a sudden the Internet becomes about social media, which totally I'm still not I'm not with all that stuff. I mean, it doesn't appeal to me. I think it's baloney, a lot of it. And I, I'm probably being um, maybe a little uh, short sighted. On, in one way, but in the other way, I look at all the damage, but the website was not designed to, you know, counter any of that. The website was just designed as a, as a resource, you know. I could put their homework assignments there and put up a bunch of links, and now I, I keep trying to add more links to it, but I'm way behind. Why did you pick Classical Liberal as the, the domain name for it? What I love about Classical Liberal, first of all, is it's, you know, people are like, what the heck is that? Does that mean he's liberal as in not conservative? Um, what, what do you mean by liberal? And that's a great question because liberal means so many different things depending on the context. Uh, so the word is very confusing. And uh, sometimes I, I like that things aren't simple. I like that you have to really understand the context and, and, and know these things. Um, classical liberal, uh, as you know, refers to um, the original meaning of the word when people started calling themselves liberals, and it just means that they were advocates of liberty. They believed in liberty, and now we just call that classical liberal. Um, but most of the founders called themselves liberals, and um, that's why I, uh, I chose to call it that. Why do you think there's been a shift from just simply saying liberal in the United States to, seeing, to saying classical liberal? Well, sometimes people will say classical liberal because they don't like the other labels, and I, I'm often in that category as well. Uh, they don't want to be called conservative. They don't want to be called liberal. They, they don't feel 100% with the libertarians, and so they, try to, they twist and try to come up with something. So some will turn to classical liberal and say, all right, well, that's, that's going to be my label. So I really do consider myself generally speaking, um, of that mindset. I guess I would be a classical liberal. I, don't, I think most of us are actually classical liberals. I mean, if you believe in free uh, elections and freedom of speech and basic you know, natural rights and limits on government, then you're one way or another some version of a classical liberal. The biggest uh, divergences are, are in the area of economics and how much control there should be over the economy. Usually classical liberals... Um, it, it's a reference to uh, they want to, uh, to drastically reduce government controls over the economy. But, and you'll, so you'll have disagreements among people who call themselves this label, just like all the other labels. What do you feel like, what ideas do you feel led to the split? Like philosophically, what led to the split from just simply having the liberal label to now having to specify that this is classical liberal, this is believing in the fundamental principles of the United States to now where we have to separate it, separate it because the an economic difference. What, you, what ideas do you feel caused that? Sometimes I think American liberals and sometimes I think American conservatives um, can take positions that are illiberal, that are contrary to the principles of, of freedom. And maybe that's not even necessarily bad because freedom can't be absolute either. Um, but, but in my opinion, I do see um, both the left and the right sometimes taking positions that are too willing to give up freedom or too willing to restrict freedom. And uh, what, what sort of uh, stances would you say from the right and left are for restricting freedom in the classical liberal view? Well, um, 
I think conservatives, now I don't want to, look, I try to keep my politics out of the classroom and I feel like I'm spilling my guts here and I don't want, you know, I don't want people to even know where I'm coming from most of the time. But I, I will say that um, I think sometimes conservatives can um, be a little, go a little too far in areas of, um, of security. And I think liberals can go a little too far in areas, uh, lately anyway, of speech. Sometimes some conservatives and Republicans seem way too willing to say, hey, if it's in the name of security, then what do you have to hide? They suddenly will might remember the need for uh, privacy rights a little more if it's a, uh, a Democrat president. And I think we see the same thing. Um, but with speech, um, it really does bother me what I'm seeing uh, with the online mob and with um, some students at the uh, some of the best colleges in the country is where the problem is the most, where students say, if I don't agree with it, I'm calling it fascist and I'm not letting you say it. You know, and that, that's coming more from the left, uh, although it comes from both sides, too, sometimes. What ideas do you feel like motivate that level of thinking where this is something that we have to repress, that I, I can't hear this, whether it be uh, someone from the left talking about uh, social equality or someone from the right talking about uh, economic freedom? A person who I would really recommend um, people check out is uh, Jonathan Hade, who uh, set up uh, Heterodox Academy. Um, which is designed to promote multiple points of view, and he focuses on this quite a bit. And he uh, has a background in psychology, and he's, try he's been asking this question, why are young people now, and m most young people are not this way, as far as I know, but more and more young people are more willing to restrict freedom of speech in the name of either um, uh, safety or uh, in the name of um, not being offended. And he asks, why is that? That's a great question. I mean, maybe uh, the culture has changed where we've overemphasized comfort and safety in all kinds of other areas, uh, and it's spilled over into, uh, into politics as well. But, I, I mean, I don't know if we overemphasize safety in these other areas. You know, people talk about helicopter parenting and bubble wrap kids and stuff. So maybe that became, you know, now I can't handle hearing things that I don't like, and I'm going to deem you as somehow violating me by saying things that I don't agree with. And I don't know that that's so much a left-right thing. That's, that's People have to understand, you know. Freedom means you're free to disagree, and we have different points of view. And uh, how do you go about that in the classroom, you know, because you have certain kids who might be, I guess, for lack of a better word, more fragile towards things than others. How do you go about uh, addressing these things without, you know, completely just hampering the conversation with this person? I don't know. I probably screw up a lot. Yeah. I just try to be very, very nice. <laughs> mm. I hope I succeed. You think it works most I of the time? I don't know. No? Involving, you know, believing in freedom to disagree and things like that, there's a certain level of a freedom of being, like, a, I guess you could say contradicted or offended and things like that. How do you exactly get kids to start thinking about what they hear, whether necessarily not trying to get them to disagree with what they've been reading, but rather look at it more critically? I, I try from the beginning and to keep reinforcing the idea that we've got to hear different points of view. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I use the, the mountain example and how the mountain looks different depending on if you're on the east side or the south side or the north side. That doesn't mean you're wrong, it just means you're only getting an incomplete picture. You know, and we want to hear different points of view to get a more complete picture. I, I, I probably use that too much, 
but I think it, it, it really it makes a great point. And, and we're supposed to be a pluralistic society. What does that mean? That lots of people are going to have lots of different points of view. The main emphasis actually used to be religious points of view because they were worried about how divided we were over religion. But the same principle applies to politics and, and, and a lot of different things like that. Uh, we have to be okay with people thinking things that we don't like as long as they're not trying to harm or cause harm. And, and this is not always um, neat and easy. There's gray areas, you know, and, and, and like we said, freedom's not absolute. And you need to maybe to a degree, you know, we should always be careful about what we say to other people. We don't want to deliberately offend people. So when we talk to people that we disagree with, we want to try to be as courteous and respectful as possible. The problem, though, is on the other side, you also have to try to not always be offended and understand people are going to say things I shouldn't take, I shouldn't take it the wrong way or, or, or assume the worst when they say things. If I do find it offensive, maybe I should make that a conversation starter and say, hey, why, would you, why do you say that? Because I, I don't understand what you mean by that. You know, and I think you're a good guy. I don't think you're, you're trying to be hurtful, but uh, I don't know how to process that. But, the, you know, we have to be thinking about these things to do that. Otherwise, we just go right to the, you know, we shoot from the hip and it gets ugly. And uh, you talked about like a religion and how religion used to be the big focal point on our differences in terms of point of view and things like that. Right. In some ways they still are. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like people have started to religiously follow their ideas and there's a certain fear factor in that uh, someone who's criticizing my ideas is really attacking me personally? It seems that human beings need a belief system. They need to believe in something. They got to have a cause or something that you know that kind of defines them in their worldview. And absolutely, I think that if it's not religion, it's going to be something else. Now, um, historically, religion was approached as my religion is right, your religion is false, your enemy is a god, and uh, we have to do whatever it takes to be right by God. So there's no room for any kind of uh, flexibility there, and that's total religious intolerance, and that's basically human history. Then we have more recently the idea of religious tolerance. So our country was founded on that, which was radical at the time. We're not going to be founded on a religion. There is no established religion here, um, and there will be lots of different religious beliefs, and none at all, and we all have to be willing to get along because it's a free country. You're free to believe what you want, freedom of conscience. Uh, Madison put this great. He, you know, he said, look, your religious views are another property of yours. You own them. They belong to you, and nobody has the right to take them away. Um, but you also don't have the right to take them away from others. Uh, you, have the, you have to be tolerant of views you don't agree with. And that everybody understood that, I think, for a while. You know, it was a general part of the culture in America. I don't think people apply the logic uh, when it comes to politics today, I think there's, it's almost like we, you know, we don't have that reminder. Hey, you know, religious freedom. Hey, political freedom. People can have different points of view. I, I do see some people get so focused on a particular conclusion that they follow it dogmatically and religiously. And if you disagree, it's like you're a heretic and you're offending the faith if you say that. And you can't say that. Um, and it's, it is... I want to call it interesting, but it's also, it's pretty messed up. Why do you feel like people start to almost dogmatically follow the figures that they associate with their ideas as well? They might necessarily not even completely uh, encompass that what they believe. I, I think that's, again, part of human nature. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we'll make a, a particular individual the embodiment of what we want, and we just project on them what we think or what we want them to believe, or what we think they're going to do, and then we follow. And that's our, that's our leader, that's our hero. I, I think we're seeing it more in American politics now than we used to. Um, and it, you know, but it is kind of a global norm. It's, this is what human beings do. I don't think it's good. Um, but this cult of personality that we're, we're seeing more and more is, um, and, and again, both sides in America uh, do that. Um, you know, I remember when, when President Obama got elected, I had never seen people wear a T-shirt with a politician's face on it or hold up things with, the, you know, that, to me, I, that was something other countries did. Now, with Obama, if anybody deserves a pass, we give it to Obama because he's a historic president. You know, he, he, he broke barriers and all of that. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, is this where American politics are going, where we're going to be like, this guy's my leader. He gives me hope. There you go. A little picture of him says hope. And what the heck does hope mean? Hope what? Hope could mean anything. So we're just projecting whatever we want. I'm going to put all my hope in that person. And I think uh, we, we see it now with, with all of our candidates. And there's definitely something going on with Trump, too. Um, that's why there's a big division in the Republican Party where certain people said, I'm a, I'm a never Trumper. And then other people are, are defending Trump, even when it seems like he's taking positions that would be contrary to what y you, you would think they would support. Do you think it's, do you think it's a, a new revelation? Like a, we had presence in the past, like a FDR. Um. Well, I think FDR definitely in that category because of the extreme things going on. You had the Depression in World War II. Um, I'll give Americans a little bit of a pass on that one because uh, uh, of all the stuff that was happening. I didn't see people supporting Clinton like that, the way Trump people support Trump, some of his you know, biggest supporters, or the way Obama supporters um, you know, said, hey, you don't question Obama. I, I just never saw this. You know, Reagan, yes, there was a lot of strong support for Reagan, but I never saw anybody wearing a Reagan shirt till after he was not president anymore. Now, you know, it was almost like a nostalgia thing. Uh, one of the things that's come up is uh, people, particularly on the left, will be uh, protesting things wearing a Che Guevara shirt. Now, um, Che Guevara has a, you know, a history of being a revolutionary in South America and things like that. I have some friends from Cuba who um, would tell me stories about how their parents wouldn't like talking to Argentinian kids and things like that just because Che was from Argentina and talk about how um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't involve themselves with that. And that's how deep-rooted the hatred was towards Che Guevara and, and uh, particularly from Cubans who uh, originally left uh, Castro's regime to come here. How do you feel now that uh, people are wearing a shirt almost as like it's a, a heroic symbol? Well, that's been around for a long time, actually, the Che shirt. And... Um, I think the truth is, I think most people wear the shirt because it's just a cool-looking shirt, and Che looks really awesome on that shirt. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's – I don't think most people even know what Che represents. Or if they do, they'll hear it, but then they never studied what that really means. So communists could be cool because, well, you know, communism has these great uh, ideals, you know, like equality or something, um, and that's as far as they take it, and they don't really – study well let, let's look at what the regime did that he set up let's look at what he personally did as the executioner for Castro I think most people just don't know that on one hand it's always bothered me always seeing Che shirts because I don't know how do we why are we glamorizing a guy who who 
uh, murdered people for their political beliefs. It, it bothered me very much. And obviously, he helped set up a country <laughs> that people have been trying to escape from ever since. But there are some people out there that, for some reason, just like it anyway. And I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Um, but I do think most people are kind of innocent. They just, it's a cool shirt. It's sold everywhere. It looks great. And, and you know, so they buy it. And um, I guess to, like, close it off is, like, um, how do you feel with um, this a new atmosphere ar around really focused as a, a technological atmosphere? How do you feel you as someone who's been teaching for so long and really oh, colleagues man, why you like you? say it like that? How do you want me to say it? Experienced. <laughs> <laughs> you being an experienced teacher. How do you feel uh, you uh, tackle this, you know, this world of information, things like that? Well, I think a lot of the most provocative um, <clears throat> actions or positions really don't represent the mainstream. I'm not seeing a lot of, like, I'll, I'll see things like that on the internet, but I'm not seeing it in the world, the real world around me. Um, so I, I don't know if, it, if the two things uh, are really representative. Um, in terms of you know, is there less reverence for certain things like the Constitution or, or, or whatever? Um, we're, we're, we are supposed to be a little irreverent uh, and always be examining everything. So in and of itself, I think we should always be questioning. We shouldn't just blindly say, oh, well, that's the Constitution, so boom. I mean, that's why we have an amendment process. Um, but I, I think whatever position people take, they should just try to take a step back and say, all right, I want to really understand this thing that I believe that I'm against or these people that I think are such a threat or are dangerous or that I'm against and, and try to understand it before you, um, you take these hardline positions, um, especially when they're the people all around you that are our neighbors and that otherwise seem to be pretty good people, <laughs> you know. Um, so on, on one hand, if, if people are saying, I'm going to take a hardline position on um, white nationalists or white supremacists. Good. Absolutely. We've established a long time ago, and we understand that, that that's, that's bad. That's bad stuff. Um, but I see some people equate, like white nationalists, for example, or, or white supremacy or racism, 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 with defending the Constitution. I have seen that. People say, oh, anyone who defends the Constitution is a racist. What? What are you talking about? Or if you go to see that speaker, that speaker's a racist. Well, that speaker specifically says they're not a racist, and they say they don't like racism. Why are you calling them a racist? By the way, they're a fascist. Whoa, <laughs> hold on a second. You know, and actually people were doing this a lot in the, you know, go back, you mentioned the 1950s, right? Well, people used to do this. That person's a communist. We got to get those reds. They're all reds. Wait a second. Why are you calling this person that? You know, what's the truth? What is their real position? Um, and not that long ago, um, people would be derisive. People on the right would say, oh, that person's just a socialist. That Democrat's a socialist. You know, and then people would get upset. Hey, stop calling me names. What are you doing? That's not my position. So I think everybody needs to just, you know, what does that person really believe? Let me listen to him. And let's, let's try to have a, a conversation. So you said we're ending? Mm -hmm. I want to end on a positive note. Okay. I saw in a really great example where one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement um, spoke to, uh, now there's not much of the Tea Party left, but there were a bunch of old Tea Party um, people. 
and they were there and they at first they were kind of you know heckling him a little bit but they listened to the black lives matter uh, leader and he listened to them and at the end they it was like kumbaya a little bit they they the tea party people uh if you don't know who the tea party is it's considered a, a very conservative or or on the right um, movement against what was seen as um, the government getting too big. Since they're on the right, they're associated with law and order and, and you know, giving the cops the benefit of the doubt. But here they are listening to, the, to one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and they were clapping for him at the end. And he was listening to them, and he was saying, you know what, y you have a point too. So if, if those two groups can listen to each other, then there's hope. I hope. Uh, and we'll end it on that. Um, this will hopefully be, again, an ongoing uh, segment involving different uh, personalities and teachers from around the school talking about things similar to this. Uh, thank you very much, Panino, for uh, coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. The last thing we're going to do is reference it to a, what I suggest as a good uh, philosophical movie. It's called The Truman Show. <laughs> yeah. Good morning. Excellent. And in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.